Last week we looked at a certain characteristic of Moses and it was kind of a remarkable statement that was made about him right? and kind of looking at, at, at this quality in his life. It's, it's like he displayed a heavenly quality more than anyone else alive at that time. That's quite something to say. Right, that he displayed a quality more than anyone else on the earth. And, you know, in the world we recognize, you know, when someone displays a, a quality or an ability that makes them special, you know, in the sense that, you know, like, like the Olympics, right? we celebrate that every four years and we recognize when someone has to, the ability to perform at the highest level, that's something we appreciate. It's kind of innate in us that we want to we want to recognize that. But but it's also the understanding that heaven also recognizes those who operate at the you know at a high level, so to speak, you know, uh, in in the things of the kingdom of God. And so that's what was. Kind of happening here, and it actually kind of gives us a glimpse into um, into eternity, and shows us what heaven values and what they're looking for. Because you know, we're not just like looking at history; we're not just looking at a story in the Bible. It's like we're allowed to see one of the greatest things in heaven, what or what is valued in heaven, the qualities they're, they're looking for as they see our lives upon earth. You know, sometimes we think about, you know, the mythology that the Greeks had. And, you know, of course, their mythology is that the gods were up there looking down at mankind. And sometimes they dabbled in the affairs of man and and so forth. Uh, And that's a basis for a lot of stories and fables. But, you know, there's a spiritual reality that that's based upon. Of course, they corrupted that with their gods and so forth. But but, you know, there's a great cloud of witnesses up in heaven that's looking down on earth and they're not interfering they're they're cheering and rejoicing when the plan of god is fulfilled and when people hit the mark and they run the race and they do glorious things you know as as we read about in hebrews in in the saints the heroes of faith and they're cheering us on and so you could imagine you know the cloud up there it was smaller that as Moses was on earth, right, it just kind of kept increasing over time. But, but yet you can, you can imagine the heroes of faith at that point. Well, they were actually, I got to get my theology right. They weren't in heaven at that point. They were, you know, Christ hadn't made the way yet. But they were still, you know, hoping that those would hit the mark. And, but we still see that, that concept of heaven and what heaven desires. And so you can kind of imagine you know, those looking at Moses and saying, oh, look, th- look, there's Moses. You know, he had such godly parents. He has a good beginning. But then, you know, they see the potential. And now, oh, look at the meekness he's walking in. We haven't seen that in all the generations of the earth. What a wonderful testimony that he's, the, he's walking in that at such a high level. And, and so here's Moses. He's declared to be the meekest man in all the earth. And I think that helps us understand why he's one of the, the two witnesses 
or the two, the two who stand by the Lord to strengthen him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And we also believe he's one of the two witnesses with the two candlesticks or olive trees referred to by Revelation and Zechariah. They stand before the Lord of the whole earth. And, you know, last week we gave that definition of this Hebrew word that, that in the, I read it in the King James, it's translated meek, but the, the definition for it is to be poor, needy, humble, afflicted, or meek. Now, in this Hebrew word is used 26 times in the Old Testament. Um, we we tr- look at how it was in the King James. It was translated meek 14 times. But another word, another way it's translated, and this is kind of the focus for this message, is it's also translated as the word humble. In fact, when we read the New King James, let's read this verse again uh, in Numbers 12 and verse 3. It says, now the man Moses was very humble, more than all the men who were upon the face of the earth. And so that is also an accurate statement, right? Even though we make a distinction, there there are distinctions we make between these two qualities, but yet it's an accurate statement. There's kind of a crossover, multiple meanings and nuances in this one word. But Moses was humble. And, you know, humility is basically the ability to take the low place. There's more to it that we could get into, but we'll just look at that, this concept, that the ability to like take the low place, to allow others to be exalted, knowing that God is going to lift them up in due time. And it's not to be lifted up to be higher than other people. It's the desire of wanting to be lifted up to sit with God in heavenly places, to be with the Lamb. And so we see this with Moses because here his sister and his brother, they get a little jealous and they confront Moses. They oppose him and they say, hey, you know, we can hear from God too. Why does it have to be all Moses all the time? You know, we we should be in the spotlight. As well, that's a. I'm kind of adding some. That's what I think was the thought process behind that. It's not the exact words used, but, but you know they were opposing him. But there's nothing recorded in Scripture of any defense that Moses gave. To defend his position, as as a leader, or defend his reputation. Right? I mean, you you might legitimately think, well, the leader has a right to say, look, God put me in this position, and He didn't put you in this position. So keep quiet. But he didn't do that. He was willing to stay, to stay in that low place of silence. And he was willing to just put his reputation on the altar. And to humble himself in the eyes of the Lord and the congregation. Right? Because this was not done. I don't, it does, I don't imagine this was done without anyone else knowing it. It's hard to tell, but, but it sure did come out in the open. But he just trusted in the Lord that God would defend him. Now, I want to look at a few other instances where this, this Hebrew word is translated as humble. It kind of speaks to us. In, uh, one of them is Psalm 9 and verse 12. And it says, when he, speaking of God, when he avenges blood, 
He remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. You know, there can be long seasons where God waits for the crop to come to maturity. You know, he's the husbandman or the farmer, and he's waiting for the precious fruit to mature. That's true for the righteous and the wicked, actually. You know, I just taught the second coming, and I'm kind of going over my notes to get ready to, to do a video recording of it. But, you know, one of the aspects of the last days is God is coming to, he's coming for a harvest of the righteous, but he's coming to judge the wicked. And that happens in a specific season. And just as the, as the righteous have to, to come to maturity, God waits for the wicked to come to maturity as well, you know, to, for them to come to that place where they're ready to be judged. You know, the, the wheat come to maturity, but so do the tares. And so here are the humble, they're waiting, they're crying out, but it seems as if nothing's happening. But God hears every cry and he remembers. And he, it says, he remembers and he will not forget. And there will be a time when he will move. And he'll meet the needs of the humble in the fullness of time. So God is trying to give us that perspective from his point of view of the humble. Another uh, time it's used is in Proverbs 16 and verse 19. He says, It's better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than, the, than to divide the spoil with the proud. You know, the proud look down on, on the humble with derision and they say, Oh, what a low estate they've come to. Oh, they weren't successful. They, they didn't do what was right, but look at us. You know, we've got what it takes. But God is saying, It's better to dwell in that low estate with humility than to have the portion of increase or blessing that comes with the proud. Because there we know there's going to come a time of fullness and God lifts up the humble, but we also know what happens to the proud. They, right, the proud, God prepares a fall for the proud, but a lifting up for the humble. And so there comes a day when they're lifted up and they received their portion like Joseph in a day. He was lifted up and brought out of that humble place and put in that place, you know, as, it, as we have studied it within the life of Joseph. But this, we can see this expression in one last verse. At least one we'll bring out. Psalm 10 and verse 12. You see, there comes a time when God arises. It says, Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. And so there comes a time when God arises. There is a lifting up because he has declared he's not going to forget the cry of the humble. It comes to his ears and he doesn't forget it. And there is a time of lifting up. But, you know, I think we can understand that in, in this study, you know, and, and especially with Moses, is that we're looking at this thought of heavenly qualities, things that heaven admires and is looking for and, and kind of searching out in the lives of men. It's like, like it says, the eyes of the Lord are going to and fro throughout the whole earth, 
He's on a search. Heaven is on a search looking for these qualities and looking to develop these qualities. But it does take preparation. Sometimes it takes long seasons. Well, I'd say all the time. It takes long seasons of preparation, especially when you're talking about these qualities that are so loved in the kingdom of God. And we're comparing them to like the, an Olympian who, who reaches the pinnacle. We know that no one goes to the Olympics without long seasons of practice, of preparation, of endurance, of, of giving everything it takes to get to that point. And so God does that in the lives of his candidates through seasons. And, you know, we, we know with Moses, he had the sense of a great calling early on in his life that he knew it was clear to him God had called him to that place of being a deliverer, that of, of you know, working on behalf of his people, helping them, that God had kind of, you know, put him in the courts of Pharaoh for such a time as this, kind of like Esther and so that when he was 40, he fully expected and was ready to step in, into that role. Right? He was just, Lord, coach, put me in. I'm ready to go. You know, it's like he, he had that anticipation. Of course, that's, and that's why he tried to save the Israelite from the Egyptian. You know, but that desire in his heart was legitimate. And it was accurate. And that was his calling. He was just a little bit off in his timing and in his training for what God wanted to use him for. He had some more training to go through. And so it's interesting, you know, when you, when you think about in our mind, how, how would you choose to take someone to prepare them for the calling of Moses had to lead millions through the wilderness, like some of the qualities and the, the lessons they would need in our mind, preparing someone for greatness and responsibility, you know, for that to lead such a large number of people, you'd think I should keep them in the king's court for a while, give them responsibility, like teach them how to train people and how to interact and, and so forth, have experience leading multitudes and know what great leadership is like and, and so forth. And I'm sure Moses had a certain level of that exposure in his, in his first 40 years. But you know, in the next phase, that totally ended. That was over. And he was taken out of the courts of Egypt and he was put into that lowly position of being a shepherd over sheep. I don't know how the big the flocks were. Maybe they were big flocks. Right? <laughs> Maybe he had flocks of, of thousands. I don't know. But he was taken away from the prestigious courts, from the glory and splendor of of the greatest kingdom on earth at that time. And it brought into a lowly place of learning the lessons of being a shepherd. Now, David also experienced this, you know, of, of being a shepherd and learning the lessons of the sheep. But he did that when he was a, a young man and then he was taken out and put into, you know, the, the court of King Saul. Of course, then he was also taken out. He had his own season to go through. But for Moses... He was taken from the court for 40 years. He had to learn to walk humbly with his God. And the Lord emphasized that to, to a very large degree 
in his life. But, you know, and it wasn't just to give him the tools he needed to lead Israel. It was to give him the quality that he needed to lead Israel. You know, sometimes the Lord wants to emphasize a certain quality in our lives. And so he takes us through long seasons. And perhaps it's because he wants to give us the double portion of that quality. And so because of that, we need a double portion of training to go along with that. And I think the life of Moses can be seen in the ingredients of the holy oil that came upon the priests in the, the, that oil that was used in the tabernacle. And we want, we've gotten into this in the past, so I won't go deep into this. But the oil that was uh, made up, it was made up of four ingredients, each which speak of, of, a, of a quality that heaven is looking for. Well, actually it's five. It had a base of olive oil, but then the, these four spices were added to the, the, the oil. You know, oil speaks of the the anointing of the spirit, but yet these four spices are critical. You know, and it speaks of the thought of unity, but, but the, the ingredients were 500 shekels of myrrh, which speaks of meekness. We've looked at that. But also, it was 500 shekels of cassia, which speaks of humility. There was also 250 shekels of cinnamon, and then 250 shekels of calamus. Cinnamon speaks of goodness. Calamus speaks of gentleness. And so these ingredients all together was that anointing oil that was put upon the priest and it was used in the, in the tabernacle. And that thought of unity, we get that from Psalm 133, where it talks about how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like that that ointment, that anointing, that oil that came upon the priest and it flowed down to his garments, to the body. And so the idea that for us to come to unity, unity with God and heaven, unity with each other, it requires a double portion of meekness and humility. You know, we can we can have much in the Christian life in the sense of we can have gifts and abilities. We can have a calling. You know, we can have experiences. We can have stories. And we can bring a lot to the table as, as believers. But if we lack these certain ingredients, something's always going to come up short in our lives. And sometimes it can be apparent, right? Because it can be like someone, they, boy, they've got such potential. And then when they come up short, it's like, oh, man, how sad. And the sadness is the potential they had to come into that place. You know, I, I think of this often in relation to the story of the rich young ruler. He was someone with awesome potential. You know, and, and when you read, he's, he's in three of the Gospels, and you kind of have to read all three of them to get the full picture of him, because Luke says he was a ruler, Matthew says he was young, and they all say he was rich. But he comes to Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 16, and he says, good teacher. Now he's recognizing Christ. He has something. And of course, the Lord said, well, hey, 
Do you understand what you're saying when you're calling me good? You're calling me God. But yet here was this young man seeking the kingdom of God and he'd been walking that way for his whole life. He was serious about his walk. And we know Jesus responded, you know, when he said, well, what can I do to, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responded, well, follow the commandments. And the young man said, but I've done that since I was young. That, that's been my practice. And Mark shows the full response of Christ, you know, which I, I like reading it in this gospel. In Mark 10, 21, it says, Jesus looked on this young man and he loved him. It doesn't say that about a lot of people, you know, where Jesus looked and he loved them. It, sometimes he looked at people and got upset at them. <laughs> but it says he loved this young man. And he said to them, said to him, there's just one thing you lack. Just go and sell what you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. What an opportunity. What potential this man had to become a part of the disciples, a part of the early church, a part of those who are used by God on the day of Pentecost. But he lacked an ingredient that the Lord was saying, just add this one thing to the mix and you will be ready to follow me wherever I would lead you. I would propose, or I, I, would, I would say there's a concept we can have is that perhaps he lacked that cassia, that humility. And so the Lord advised him, sell what you have. You know, he had known what it's like to live. We have the phrase in, in U.S., high on the hog, right? He, he knew what it was like to live in the high place. But the Lord was inviting him to follow him in the low place in the low way. And in order to follow him, he had to give up what kept him in that high place. And it says that young man went away sorrowful because he could not give up that his possessions, his position in that, in owning that. And he missed out on that awesome opportunity to follow the lamb, wherever he led him. And you know, that's really what life is about. It's about taking advantage of the opportunity to follow the lamb as his disciple. But it requires his ingredients being added to our life, to our character, to our heart. It also requires a full surrender to that process because sometimes we seek, you know, Lord, would you meet with us, and sometimes God presents us with opportunities. And sometimes we're like, well, Lord, I've been praying. And he says, here you go. Well, Lord, I wasn't praying for it in exactly that way. That was what happened with the rich young ruler. Here is the way. He went away sorrowful because he wasn't able or willing to receive that ingredient in his life. And so it, that thought that that going on and following the Lamb requires full surrender. And, and having this ingredient come into our lives, it, it represents you know, a life, or you could say the rich young ruler 
He represents a life with something held back. Not wanting or willing to enter into that phase of training of being following the lamb into the unknown because you have to yield to the unknown. You have to surrender to the unknown. You know, for Moses, how could he know what was going to take place after he left Egypt? He was just surrendering. Lord, I'm going to follow you. But we know Hebrews says he left in faith. He was walking into the unknown with a faith that God was going to lead him and be with him. But he had to surrender to the unknown. It was like he stepped into the river of God and he was allowing the river to take him wherever it would. And that's what's interesting about God's river. It always carries us. But in one sense, it's like no river on earth because that river always carries us higher in his plan, in his progression. It's like Peter says, 1 Peter 5 and verse 6, if we will humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, it's that he will exalt us. He'll lift us up at due time. But you know, humbling ourselves is like stepping into that river. And there comes a point, you know, we, we can still keep our own balance and our own will and our own, you know, while our feet are still touching the bottom. But there comes a point in the river where you have to let go and you can't fight it. Because if you fight it, that's dangerous. But if you let go and you just float and you rest, that river can take you some, some places. And, it, and the river's doing all the work. You're just staying up. But yet there's something we have to consider about this, this thought because before we can come to that place of being exalted in due time, and I'll, I'll close with this thought, is we have to consider the previous verse that Peter brought out. 1 Peter 5 and verse 5. Because we can be exalted in due time if we clothe ourselves with something. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves to the elders. Yes, all of you be submissive one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble. How can we be lifted up? Or how will we be lifted up in, in the kingdom of God? We first have to wrap a certain garment around ourselves. And it's the garment of humility is, is what Peter brings out. And, and this, this is actually the only uh, place in the New Testament this phrase in the Greek is used, being clothed with humility and the lit it literally refers to the garment of a servant or the right word would have been a slave. The garment of a slave. Now, if there's, some, if there's an unpleasant thought we can think of, it will be the life of a New Testament slave because they had zero rights. Their lives were in the balance of the hand of the master. He could do whatever he wanted to them. You know, I mean... They were totally at the will of the master. And that's the phrase that's, that's Peter's using here. Clothe yourself with the garment of a slave in order to follow the lamb. You know, 
in Jesus' day, it was very clear what class you, you were belonged to based on your garment, the quality of your garment. Uh, they could tell if you were a servant. You know, today, if you, it's, not, it's not as prevalent, but there's still a certain class. You know, if you go to a hospital, you can tell who works for the hospital because they're clothed with certain garments. They have scrubs. You can tell, you know, a doctor might have a stethoscope or something like that. You know, or you can see some other people or mechanics, you know, they have overalls on and you can tell that's their trade that they're working in. But in New Testament times, a slave would be recognized by their garment. It was usually just a dull gray garment that they wore because the masters didn't invest a lot of money into the garments of their servants. But that's what this saying is, that we're to gird on, we're to cover ourselves with a garment of humility so that, you know, so that instead of people seeing our, our gifts and our talents and our callings and, and putting on a display, you, know, you could say like shine, the shining armor of the Spirit of God, they just see the cloak of a servant. Now there's an interesting uh, vision I read that someone had, and they had a vision of the church as an army in the last days. And they saw a huge horde, an evil army, and they were under the banners, and they said the banners were pride and self-righteousness. So that was the evil army. But they said they saw another army, and it was the army of God. And he said that they, they were outnumbered. But, and, and he said what was interesting, only a small number of them were fully clothed. Some of them, they, they weren't prepared. They didn't have their armor on. Um, but he said they started to rise up. And they put their armor on and they started to fight the, the demonic army and, and they started to retreat. And they thought they were strong enough to pursue and finish the battle. But an angel appeared to them and said, you're not ready to fight yet, this, this final battle. And the angel said, uh, look over at this valley. And they looked, and the, but they couldn't see because the, the light was reflecting off their armor so brightly that they couldn't see what was in front of them. And so the angel had a, a, this dull, drab garment that he offered them to put on their armor. And it was a garment of humility. And as they put that garment on, it was to cover up their nice, shiny armor. And all of a sudden, it allowed them to see that right in front of them was an army hidden to, to attack them if they went forward. And it was an entire valley full of an army, and, and the angel revealed to them that the name of that army was Pride. And, you know, Pride was the hardest enemy to see. And there's only one way that you can see Pride, and that's to cover yourself with the cloak of humility. And those who don't have that cloak will suffer greatly at the hands of the enemy. I thought that was, that was just kind of a vision someone had of the last days, but I thought that really depicts this quality that's needed of humility. Because it's that garment that's to be the outermost garment that everyone is to see. It's to cover us. But it's that garment that ensures we are lifted up in due time. You know, sometimes we can get distracted even by our own you know, work that God's done in our lives by our own gifts, 
by our own shining ministry or calling or, or different things or that, that prophecy we had or whatever it is, that we can lose sight of the very purpose that God has called us to walk in, which is to follow him as the servant of all into that low place. You know, and to do that, we have to put on the garment of humility over our minds, over our hearts. And of course, Peter talks about that, you know, about putting on the garment. It passes over our mind first, and we have to meditate on it, and then it passes over our heart. We have to allow God to work that into us, and then over our, they had long garments, and then over our legs, we walk in it. But that's what God is calling us to put on. Now I'll just close with this last, last thought here, because it's hard for me not to think about this thought of humility and how heaven values the thought of humility without thinking about the vision that Pastor Bailey had of heaven. And, you know, he had a, the Lord showed him an assembly in heaven, and it was like a huge amphitheater or a stadium. We would think of, you know, sitting in a football stadium watching the game or something and how seats, you know, kind of slope up so everyone can has, has a view of that. And so there was a big amphitheater and he said he saw seats going way up and up and up and up. But then there were also seats at the bottom of the stadium. And he said in the middle was a throne and that's where Christ was sitting. And he, and he understood in the vision that, that those at the lowest place had taken on the humility of Christ because Christ was the lowest, is the lowest. He had walked in that low place. And those that were sitting next to him had also walked in that way of humility. And there was that progression. Those who had qualified in life through humility got to sit near the lamb and then it kind of went up from there. You see, those who had put on the humility, they had obeyed Christ. They had followed the lamb and how they had followed, obeyed him and how they related to others. That whole stadium was filled because of a recognition of the humility of the Lamb of God. And if you became like Christ, you got to sit near Him. Now that's something I think about because it, when we get to heaven, it, it just kind of seems like the whole recognition of heaven is going to be on what quality did you allow God to develop in your life? And then from that quality, what did you do with it? How did you follow the lamb? You know, and, and so when we consider the life and example of Moses, we recognize he followed the lamb into the low place, even though he hit the mark in a high place, but yet in his heart, he followed him into a low place. He went through a long season of 40 years where he just had to surrender to sell all and follow him. You know, the Lord was saying, okay, you've, you've done pretty good in the first 40 years. Now there's something you're lacking that I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do in the next 40. He didn't know the outcome. And I have to believe he, he came to that place of saying, well, Lord, if I, I know I have a promise, but if I stay here and I never come into that place of being anything great or being a deliverer, that's okay. I just want to follow you. Um, I surrender to whatever, wherever you're going to lead me. Of course, then the Lord said, no, now you're ready. 
come to my my burning bush and we'll, we'll have a discussion. But a work had been done in Moses. He'd allowed meekness and humility to be developed to such a high degree. And that's the lesson for us. And that's why Moses is our role model, especially for the last day church, because we need meekness. We need humility. And so this life is an opportunity to excel in glorious humility. Right? That, they might seem at, at opposites, but only on earth. In heaven, that will be apparent. We're going to rejoice in that we allowed the Lamb to work in us and, and put glorious humility within our hearts. It'll be glorious because it allows us to sit with the Lamb in that place near His throne. And that's the invitation in this life. That's the opportunity. Because we endeavor to clothe ourselves with that garment of Christ who became the servant of all, we're really just joining Him in the low place. And I think we're going to find in heaven, you know, as we're going to find in heaven, the low place is the place of glory because that's where the Lord walked and that's who he dwells with. And Lord, we just thank you that you walked in that low pathway for us, for all of mankind. And Lord, we thank you that that's the invitation you're giving, Lord, for us to to walk with you in the low place so that we can be raised up to sit with you in heavenly places. And so, Lord, we just pray that you'd help us, Lord, to, Lord, as we're in that place and that opportunity of the rich young ruler that you're inviting us and you're pointing out those one things or those things that, that might lack in us, Lord, we cry out to you for help, that you'd help us, oh Lord, to say yes to you. Lord, to surrender, to come into the river and let you wash us and cleanse us and, and put those beautiful things upon us, those beautiful garments, especially the garment of a servant. Oh, Lord, do that work within us, we pray. Oh, thank you, Lord, for the wonderful opportunity to put within us glorious humility. Oh, have your way in us, we pray, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.